good morning, everybody. Good morning to everybody that's here. Uh, good morning to those of you that are online, taking advantage of some uh, technology to be able to uh, participate remotely. I'm John Malella. I'm one of the elders here at Gateway, and I'll be speaking today as we continue in our Advent series. So it's less than two weeks before the day. What day, you may say? Well, of course, let me get a little bit of Ebenezer in here. It's Christmas Day. Soon we'll hear that. The most wonderful time of the year. I mean, it has to be, right? That's what the song says. And yet, for a lot of people, this time of year is, mm, shall we say, less than wonderful. Uh, we're, we're busy. We're very busy. People are starting to gather again. Office parties, right? Even some of them on Zoom. Um, Trips to plan, uh, to, to see family, things to buy. Uh, hashtag broke for some of us. Our email boxes filling up with, with notices of sales. 30% off, act now. 40% off. Hard to resist. We're busy. And for some of us, there are issues that come up during this time. Uh, for some of us, this season is tinged with sadness. We're reminded of people that we've lost. For some of us, we, um, we carry around grief that might not be resolved. And it somehow, it, it seems to surface around the holidays. Those of, of us, uh, those that struggle with, with any kind of addiction, with alcoholism, or anything else, this season can be very difficult. And for what is supposed to be a season of light, it can be a season of exhaustion and disappointment. And I've wondered if at least part of the reason for this Christmas angst, as I'll call it, is that mm, so much expectation is put on this one day, it can't possibly bear that weight of expectation. We put all this time and effort and money into this one day, and then when it's over, we say, well, was that it? That's it? expectations of happiness and satisfaction. And a lot of that comes in the form of, of gifts, doesn't it? That no matter how much we look forward to getting a certain gift, it seems that it, it, it just doesn't satisfy. So as I thought about gifts, and I thought about, mm, somehow the, a lot of times the reality of the gift doesn't quite match the expectation of that gift. Um, have you ever had that experience? the gift that you long for, once you have it in your hands, it kind of loses its luster. It loses, uh, the, the shine seems to fade. And I began to ask myself, when in my own life have I seen this happen? And as I strolled down the corridor of my memory, I thought back to when I was about eight years old. And this was growing up in New York City, uh, living on 130th Street in Kew Gardens, Queens. Um, I had been over my friend Paulie Canoli's house. Um, now, Canoli was not his actual last name, and um, Paulie, if you're out there listening, um, I forgot your last name, but we did call you Paulie Canoli. Um, he was a few years older than the rest of us, so what that meant is that he had more toys. Right? I don't know if you had this on your block. There's always one kid that has all the toys. So uh, we would go over Paulie's house and we would play in, in his basement. And usually it would be, you know, G.I. Joe's or, or something like that. And I'll never forget the time we went over to, to, uh, 
Paulie's house. We're playing in his basement. And I look across the room and I see it. I don't, do we have a picture of, of this? Um, yes. There it is. The Fantastic Sea Wolf. That was the actual name. It was the G.I. Joe Fantastic Sea Wolf. Oh, Sea Wolf, even now when I see you, my heart skips a beat. The Sea Wolf was a full submersible submarine for G.I. Joe action figures. It even came with its own giant squid. And I remember once I saw that, I had to have it. I had to have the fantastic Sea Wolf, the eight-year-old John Malella. So um, what did I do? I pestered my parents for months. This was probably the summer. So, um, you know, I, I want the Sea Wolf. I have to have the, the, the Sea Wolf, Mom and Dad. And um, I still remember Christmas morning, I jumped out of bed, and it was, uh, I don't know how my parents allowed me to do this, because nobody else was up. It was the crack of dawn, I'll never forget this, and I run into the living room where we had the presents, and I, I start ripping open boxes. I, again, I don't know how I was allowed to get away with this, and I found it. I found the box with the sea wolf in it. Um, there, there's a, an ancient picture, this is about 1855, and, and that's, that's me, yeah, I know, I know, the, yeah. The eyes stayed the same, the rest of me grew. I know that's what people say when they see that. And that's older brother there in the back. Um, I was a little bit older than this. Yes, I am wearing footy pajamas, uh, which I'm sure if we were all honest, some of you still wear, uh, but we won't get into that. And, and there we were playing, that was a Christmas morning, but a few years after that, I think. Um, and this, I had the sea wolf. I had it in my hands. I played with this thing every chance I got. I took a bath with the sea wolf. My mother wasn't crazy about that. She wasn't. Um, but I had my sea wolf. Now, you, you probably know how this goes. After a few weeks, uh, I lost the squid. There were other pieces I, I couldn't find anymore either. Um, and the sea wolf itself, it started to get this white stuff on it from the bath. Um, I thought it was soap stuff, but actually, where we lived in New York, New York actually has excellent water. Uh, that comes from upstate New York, reservoirs. Where we lived in Queens, we actually used well water, uh, very high in mineral content. It would leave this, this white film on any of my toys in the bath. The sea wolf started to get this white film on it. Uh, and I also learned something terrible about G.I. Joes. If you put them in water too much, their hair would fall out. Yeah. So my G.I. Joes started to look like they had mange. And of course, as time went on, other toys took the place of the sea wolf until it found its way to the bottom of the toy box. And I think eventually it was given away or even thrown out. So as Christians, we've been told that we have received the greatest gift, God's own son, Jesus. But for many of us, like the young John, we've gotten distracted by other presents. Like the young John, you've lived with this gift for a while, and it's become mm, part of the furniture. And if you're honest, may, maybe, maybe you're a little bit disappointed with this gift. You expected more. Your expectations have not exactly aligned with your experience. So how do we, how do we get out of that? How do we get out of that feeling of mm, disappointment or mm, didn't, didn't quite match up 
How do, how do we get out of this searching for the sea wolf, too, and being disappointed? So what we need to do today is we need to put on a different lens. We need to put on a different lens. And we're going to spend some time in the company of a group of men. I warn you, they're not polished. They're not really educated. Um, they're not Northern Virginians. They're Palestinian shepherds. And we're going to stand with them as they encounter angels. And through their lens, we're going to get insight into just what this gift is. And then we're going to look at four ways the shepherds respond. So we're going to look at the gift and then four ways the shepherds respond. And we're going to use them as a model for how to look at this gift. So pray with me, please. Lord, for some reason, you have chosen this planet and, the, and the, the creatures on it to place your affection. And I don't know if we're ever going to understand why. I don't think we're ever going to get it fully. Um, so we're, we're expectant, God. We, we're, we're open to what you have to say to us today. I feel like you've already been speaking to us through the songs uh, through, through the, the video, through the reading. We ask you, Lord, to please continue to speak to us what you need us, what we need to hear today. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So in that passage, some of you probably, um, as uh, uh, the Salami family was reading that, some of you probably heard the voice of Linus, right, from uh, Charlie Brown Christmas, a very famous passage. Um, uh, how does it start off, uh, looking at verse 8, it was, it was night, and the shepherds were watching over what? Probably, probably sheep. Let's talk about being a shepherd for a while. Not a glamorous job, okay? If you went to glassdoor.com and looked up shepherding, probably, probably not a lot of good, good input there, but it paid the bills, obviously. Um, it was dangerous. Being a shepherd was dangerous. Why? Because sheep wandered, and they became easy prey for predators, for wolves, for lions. Uh, as many of you probably know this, you know, sheep, sheep are not stupid. They're not, you know, dumb sheep, that's, that's actually not accurate. Um, sheep are not, they're not stupid animals, but they've had all their natural defenses bred out of them. They have short legs, so they can't run fast. Um, they don't have claws, really. They have very small teeth. They can't defend themselves. They are very prone to disease, to parasites. They're vulnerable. Now, wolves and lions would be a challenge for a well-armed hunter today. And some of you aficionados, you know, would picture yourselves out there with a with a 12 gauge or an M4. That's not what these guys had. No. Um, these shepherds would have had a wooden, wooden staff and a, and a slingshot. Not a glamorous bunch. And most likely, you ready for this? They probably stunk. I would imagine if they visited today, we would probably set some chairs up in the back and, and maybe try to sequester them a little bit. If you've been around sheep, maybe at a petting zoo, you know that the fragrance that they emit is not exactly Chanel number no. 5. So these men, they probably smelled a little bad. Uh, they were rough. 
They have neither power nor prestige. And they get a visitor. The Bible says an angel. What, what, what are we dealing with here? Um, you, you know, here, this is an instance where we realize uh, we, we're really in what, what, uh, what theologian Karl Barth called the strange new world of the Bible. This is a different reality uh, that we're in. What, what's an angel? What, what is it? Well, basically, an angel, uh, throughout the Bible, angels are God's messengers. Um, they, bring, they bring messages to people from, from God. And here in, in this passage, he's called the angel of the Lord. Um, and you, you probably know this through biblical history. You know, angels have brought messages from God to an old man named Abraham and his wife Sarah. You're going to have a child. Um, to to uh, a priest, Zechariah. You're, you're going to have a son. You're going to name him John. And to a young virgin engaged to be married, you're, you're going to have a son. But it's rare. Angel visits in the Bible are rare. And here we have one in front of us. And how do our shepherds react? They're terrified. They're terrified. We need to get rid of that image of the, of the chubby cherub. <laughs> you probably have seen this in art. We've actually had this... Um, probably for the last few hundred years, at least since the, since the Renaissance, um, that cute kind of pudgy, naked angel that has been in our imaginations. No, no, no. When angels show up in the Bible, usually the first thing they have to say is, don't be afraid. It's a fearsome thing to encounter an angel of the Lord. And we need to be reminded, these are not weak men. They knew how to handle themselves. So what are they afraid of? I think partly it's, it's the glory of God. Now, part of me wants to say, well, they're afraid the same way I would be afraid if I saw a ghost or thought I saw a ghost or thought I encountered something supernatural that I couldn't explain. I, I would have some fear. And maybe, but I wonder if this is a little different. It's because it says God's glory shone and they were afraid. Glory. You know, glory is one of those words that we never use in regular speech, Right? We don't use that. I mean, when was the last time you heard the boss say, John, when you gave that presentation, we saw your glory. We, we don't speak like that. But often in the Bible, glory is, is something that God has, and it's portrayed by light. The glory of the Lord shown. And what, is, what happens when human beings encounter the glory of the Lord? It undoes us. It undoes us. It unravels us. Uh, we become like the Apostle Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration when, when Jesus' glory was, was uh, revealed. And, you know, Peter, who's never lost for words, started babbling. I think it's interesting that in the, in the Old Testament, the, the word for glory, uh, kavod, actually meant weight. Meant weight. Kavod Elohim in the Hebrew, the glory of the Lord, the weightiness of God. God is so solid that everything else is almost see-through in comparison. And being in that presence, in that glory, that weightiness, it undoes us. We get unraveled. And that's what happened to these guys. And the angel speaks, don't be afraid. I bring you good news about Messiah. Mm, Messiah. 
I don't think there's a word in the vocabulary of a first century citizen of Judea that's more heavily freighted than that word, Messiah. Uh, every single hope was wrapped up in that word. The messianic hope go, actually goes back to the earliest chapters of, of Genesis throughout the history of God's people that one day there would come the one, the son of David, God's king, and that he would put everything right. And as, as the centuries went on, this messianic hope, it, it, it took on certain forms that this, this son of David, that this Messiah would be a military man. And at this time, the hope was that, yeah, he would, he would expel the Roman occupiers from God's sacred nation. He would restore Israel to her rightful place as first among the nations, a military and economic power, and he would exalt the temple as God's holy place. Israel was marinating in these hopes for generations. Hmm. But, but something's wrong here. <laughs> something's wrong. If, if this were a movie and I were the director, this is when I would be yelling, cut, cut. Wait, wait, this Messiah, this royal son of David, ruler of Israel, a angels, wait, wait. What, angels, what are you doing here? What, what are you doing what are you doing talking to these guys? The capital is there. Jerusalem is there. That's where the power is. That's where the decision makers are. Why are you talking to, to these guys? These are the ones, God, cut, cut. These are the ones you send angels to? To announce the Messiah? You could have picked any humans in history to send these angels to to announce this. And you send them to this group of, hmm, Stinking unsophisticados, we have to let this sink in a little bit. God could have easily sent angels to the leaders of the nation, to the Sanhedrin, to the, uh, the Jewish ruling body. He could have sent them to the, to the Roman ruler. He could have sent them to Caesar. But instead, he chose a small group of guys with rough hands who probably smelled bad. So we begin to realize that this Messiah is not exactly going to meet expectations. Military ruler, probably not. Royal splendor, no. This Messiah is going to be different. And I've wondered if at least one reason God sent the angel to this group was because this Messiah was going to be a shepherd. These guys understood shepherding. They knew that shepherding was hard. It was inconvenient. It had few comforts. It was dangerous. And they knew that as shepherds, they, they would have to put their lives on the line beating back predators because that's what a shepherd is all about. It's about taking care of the sheep. And this Messiah was going to be our shepherd. As Jesus says years later in John chapter 10, verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me, and I know my Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, the angel goes on. This is how you're going to know this Messiah. I'm going to give you a sign. Now, a sign is not necessarily a miracle uh, as much as it is something unusual to grab the attention. And I'm sure the shepherds are, they might be wondering, well, what will the sign be? Will, will the Messiah's glory shine just like you, angel? I mean, if, if your glory rocked us on our heels, his glory, is, it, it's going to practically blind us, right? No. 
Well, all right, well, then he must be, I mean, where, wherever, wherever they have laid him, must be a, a, a house made entirely of, of gold. He must be in the, in the finest of royal fabrics. That must be the sign, right? The whole house glows. You could see it from miles away. No. The angel said, you will find the baby wrapped in clothes and lying down in a manger. And the manger, the shepherds would get this, the manger is a, is a feeding trough for animals. Wait, now wait a second. Wait, this, does that cut? Again, this doesn't make sense. What is a king doing in a feeding trough? That's how royalty comes into the world? From a human perspective, this doesn't make sense. But placing the baby king in a feeding trough only makes sense if that baby turns out to be the bread of life. As Jesus said, he, he is. The one who will offer his life for us so that we can be made whole again. Relationship restored with God, with others, and with ourselves. Mm. All right, I need to say something here. I struggled whether or not to say this. Um, I don't know how it's going to be received. It's kind of political. Um, but I think it goes beyond politics. Um, I am not targeting any political party here. But I think this needs to be said. I believe one of the church's big temptations at the moment is to forget, uh, to forget this about the Messiah. To forget that we follow a Messiah who was announced to nobodies and spent his first days in a feeding trough to ultimately offer himself. This Messiah came low. He came low. As the church comes under fire, and we are under fire, um, in our feelings of insecurity and fear and revenge, we will be tempted to substitute this humble Messiah for a strong man or a woman. I don't think that gender matters. Um, and this strong man or woman, instead of mercy, is going to have muscle. Instead of humility, will wield the hammer. And instead of love, is cold-blooded. Brothers and sisters, we, we, let's resist this temptation. In our struggles for justice, which are right and good, our reckoning with our past as a nation, which is right and good, our defense of the weak, the helpless, the unborn, which is right and good, please let us remember that we follow a Messiah that came into the world not with muscle but with mercy and with humility. This is the first time in the entire recorded history of God's people that a group of angels actually has a speaking part. And we won't see this again in the New Testament until the book of Revelation. Um, they're proclaiming a profound theological truth, glory to God in the highest, and peace on those to whom his favor rests. When God is glorified, we benefit. When God is glorified, we benefit. How do we benefit? We have peace. Not absence of conflict, but a, the peace in the Bible is different. It's, it's that shalom, Peace, the concord, harmony, the fittingness with each other and with creation. When God is glorified, we benefit. So how do the shepherds respond? I want to spend a few minutes with this. I think the shepherds give us a pattern of response that we can imitate. They give us a template that we can follow. These are the, the, the four, the four uh, actions or four responses that they took that I think could be a model for us in this season and beyond the season. Um, the four actions. Um, they heard, they went, 
They saw, they told. Very simple. They heard, they went, they saw, they told. First off, they heard the message. What was the message? The Messiah is born in Bethlehem. He's here. God has sent the one that he has promised, that he's promised for so long, the one he's been waiting for. He's here. The Messiah is born in Bethlehem for all people. Now, why, why is this a response? Uh, well, because they didn't have to listen to this. The shepherds could have said, oh, well, this is weird. I'm out of here. Where's that flask? They didn't have to listen. But they were prepared. They were prepared. Did you notice that the angel told them uh, in, the, in the city of David, and these guys knew it was Bethlehem. They, they had been prepared. They knew through that passage that had been read, uh, I think it was last week, Micah 5.2, Messiah would come from the city of, would come from Bethlehem. Now, some, some of you, God has been preparing you to hear this message. And I'll say this, if you're on the outside of faith today, if you're on the outside looking in, today you can step inside. Because the message is the Messiah is for all people. He's for you. He is for you. That includes you. He's your Messiah. He's your way to get to God. He's yours. And you can be his today. You can be his. The second thing after they heard is they went. They went. They responded to the message. Look, let's face it. They didn't have to go to Bethlehem. They weren't commanded. The angel didn't say, you know, thou shalt go to Bethlehem. He did not say that. But they went. They responded to them. They did something with their bodies. You know, faith, we've talked about faith before. You know, faith, faith is a full person response. And it involves everything, heart heart and soul, mind and body, all all that you are, it involves that. That's what these guys did. They did something with their bodies. They actually moved. It wasn't just a mental agreement or a mental adjustment. They moved. Some of you might be thinking, well, (laughs) of course, of course they responded. I would respond too if God showed up. I would respond too if God sent angels, if I could just see some evidence. It's an interesting point that's made by a lot of skeptics. Um, and, and not just skeptics, even, right, we, we that follow Jesus, that are on the inside of faith, don't we also come to that point sometimes where we're like, you know, God, if I could just see stuff, if you just showed me more, I'd be, I'd be more in. Evidence. I want to see stuff. And my response to that, to that question of would, would, I, would, I come to, would I actually come to faith if I could see something like this? Or would my faith grow if I could see something like this? My response to that is mm, probably not. And here's, here's why. Here's why I say this. I've been reading this fantastic book. It's called The Brain's Way of Healing. Um, Remarkable Discoveries and Recoveries from the Frontiers of Neuroplasticity. Yeah, I, yeah I, I often read books like this to try to pretend that I'm smart. Um, but, but basically what the book says, um, your brain is more soft-wired than hard-wired. In other words, you, you can, there are things that can change that you think are permanent in your brain. Written by a neuroscientist, Dr. Norman Dodge. 
Uh, anyway, it has, has great stories of, of people that have seemingly incurable problem, you know, multiple sclerosis and Parkinson's and um, a traumatic brain injury, and they, they, they have, um, with alternate therapies, they, they find healing, uh, even if they've been told, you, you're going to have to just live with this. Here's a quote from Dr. Dodge, the, the neuroscientist who wrote this book. He says, there was one patient who was told by her physician, her neurologist, that nothing more could be done for her. Months later, that same patient returned to the busy office and reported that she was improved by a new approach. She was re-examined by her skeptical physician using objective measures, which confirmed that she was indeed radically improved. The physician seemed almost interested, but his eye caught the clock, and he, knowing that the waiting room was full, moved on to his next case without ever asking the patient who was leaving what cured her. It was as though the physician could not believe what he had just seen because he knew that in theory it could not happen. I think we're in the same place as that fully trained, compassionate physician that could not see something because it was outside of his theory, outside of his paradigm. After they went... They saw the baby. It says they saw the child. You know, in the Bible, seeing is often a metaphor for experiencing. Uh, and experiencing God, in this case. Taste and see that the Lord is good, the psalmist says. Um, Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Uh, Jesus' own words in John 3, where he says, Truly, truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of heaven unless he is born again. What did these shepherds do? They experienced God. They saw the baby. They experienced him. You know, we are, we are called to do the same thing, to know him, to experience him, to not admire him from a distance, but jump into his arms, running at full speed, to sit at his feet, to drink up his words, to sing to him from the heart, to love on his people, to talk to him incessantly. You know, maybe for some of us, we're on the inside of faith and we've made that connection to God through Jesus. We're born again, we're in. We're in, we're in, but we're stale. We're tired. Life has beaten us up and we struggle. The choices of others and our own choices weigh heavily on us. I think for us, if we're in that state, let's follow what the shepherds did. They looked at the baby. They saw him. They kept their eyes on him. Hebrews 12.2 says, uh, exhorts us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, as an antidote to growing weary and losing heart. It has to be about him, not about us. It has to be about him. They saw the baby. They looked at the baby. They kept their eyes on the baby. And we're to do the same. And once the shepherds saw the baby, what did they do? They told. They told other people. What we see in this story is kind of a passing of the baton. Did you notice that? The angels tell the shepherds, but then they kind of bow out. How many times do we see angels proclaim the Messiah after this? The answer is easy. It's zero. <laughs> but, but wait a second. Wait. Wouldn't angels be better at this? 
Wouldn't angels be, be better at this than us? Wouldn't angels know exactly what to say? When to say it and who to say it to? Brothers and sisters, in reading this, the only conclusion I can come to is that we're it. For telling the story, we're it. In telling this message to the world, we're it. It reminds me, I think I've even said this up here, it reminds me of someone I worked with years ago who was, uh, who was, a, he was actually a transit cop in New York City in the 1970s. And his, his patrol was, was the New York City subway. 1970s New York City, okay. A little bit on the rough side. Um, and he, he told me once, it's impossible to describe the feeling the first time you're on patrol and you hear a woman yelling, help, help, police, help. And then you realize that, that's you. She's calling for you. Brothers and sisters, we're in a world that's calling for help. We're it. We're it. God, in his mind-boggling wisdom, has chosen us, not angels. He's chosen us to carry the message to the world. He's called us to imitate these shepherds and tell of what we have seen and heard. You know, maybe for some of you, God is already bringing people to mind. But I would be, I'd be remiss if I just dropped this in your lap and moved on, wouldn't I? Because for some of us, when we hear this, we feel inadequate. I'm talking to those of you that are of faith, right? We don't know what to say to people. Can I say this to you? God's people have always felt inadequate. <laughs> Listen to what the Apostle Paul, a giant of faith, says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, in regards to telling the Jesus story. He says, who is equal to such a task? Who's equal to it? But he goes on in the next chapter of that book to say that he, God has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. He has made us competent. Your competence in telling the story comes from him. Okay, practically speaking, where do you start? You invite. We invite. We practice the ministry of invitation. We invite, we invite, we invite. We invite our friends. We invite our coworkers. We invite our neighbors. Where do you invite them to? Invite them to church. Invite them to events. Invite them for coffee. You invite, you invite, you invite. John, what, what happens if they say no? You invite them again. It is really apparent to me that um, it's, it's easy for me to sit up here and, and say you should tell people. Okay. Uh, thanks, preacher man. <laughs> but I just want to point out that the telling grows out of the, of the seeing. The telling grows out of the experience. The shepherds heard, they went, they saw, and they told. Their telling flowed out of their experience. And that's, that's how God intends it for us. So today, what's your sea wolf? What's your fantastic sea wolf? What are, what are you hoping for to make you happy, to satisfy you? And, and you know, maybe if you can't answer that, um, just, just look at what you spend your, your time thinking about. Uh, look at where your energy goes, your, your money. What's your sea wolf? Uh, I don't know what it is for you. Is it, is it a job? Is it a relationship? I don't know. 
I don't know, but, but you know, and, and God knows. You may get it, but, but I have some hard news for you. If you do get your sea wolf, you'll, you'll eventually lose the squid. Eventually, that sea wolf is going to have this film on it, and it's going to wind up at the bottom of the toy box. That's hard news. But the good news is that God, God has um, better. He's got a better gift for us. He has the Messiah who was born in Bethlehem today for all people. Pray with me, please. God, we, we, we come at you today with um, probably as many different postures as there are people here. I mean, some of us are... We're running with you. Some of us are, we're dragging our feet. Some, some, some here might be, I don't know, none of this makes sense. Um, but you, you have a way to break through to all of us. You, you, you're, the, you're the one that pursues us. God, for those who are on the outside of faith today, I pray that they would make that, make that step. Because you are the Messiah for all people. And you came for, for whoever that is. You came for them. And those of us, Lord, who are, well, we're on this side of faith. And uh, honestly, we, we might be stale. And we've heard this story already. This is the Linus passage. <laughs> we've, uh, we, we've heard this already. God. We need that refreshing that only the Holy Spirit can bring. As much as we're able, God, we, we open ourselves to you even in these few moments. We know you're good. You've set your affection on this planet and the, the, the people that, that inhabit it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.